0: It's the Wonky Show. We're back. Gavin Williamson has given Vice-Chancellors a lecture on Zoom. We'll read those runes. There's a strange year for clearing to get our head around. The Student Futures Commission has a report out and stuff on international students. It's all coming up.
1: We can promote, led by the government as in the, it said in the report, the idea of the UK as welcoming all we want, but it does have to live up to that when the students get here. Yes, yes. And given the news today that this very same government is, you know, ordering lifeboats of refugees to be sent back across the channel, I'm not sure we can live up to that. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education news, policy and analysis. I'm your host Jim Dickinson and here to help us make sense of what's been going on this week. As usual, a couple of fantastic guests. Uh, In Nottingham, Paul Greatrix is registrar at the University of Nottingham. Paul, your highlight of the week please.
2: It's been a very exciting week for me Jim, but the the highlight for me was a a, a real in-person event on Monday, a big opening of our new Biodiscovery Institute at the University of Nottingham. Loads of big wigs there and lots of interesting science to see it felt like the most exciting thing that had happened in the university in years
0: excellent and in exeter sunday blake is part of the strategic delivery unit at the university of exeter sunday your highlight of the week
3: please
1: my highlight is uh quite a personal one actually i have Uh, five pictures of myself as a child and I was holding a book that I got given as a child and another picture of myself as a child fell out so the amount of pictures I have (laughs) of myself as a child has gone up by 20% excellent
0: and and yeah. uh, uh, obviously, we'll be including that picture uh, in the show notes. So, uh, yes, we start this week with the Universities UK Conference. Vice-Chancellors gathered in person at Northumbria University for their annual shindig. Sunday, what went off?
1: Uh, well, the Universities UK Conference began today, uh, and it was the first time in almost two years that the UK higher education sector has actually been able to come together in person. Um, It was a chance for the community to discuss some of the most pressing issues facing us, not least the government's plans for research skills and free speech, as as well as the question of how we will return to a form of normality after the pandemic. Um, you, university's UK president, Steve West's speech in the role, t- oh, sorry, it's his inaugural speech in the role, uh, I should say, touched on the theme of moving past the pandemic and into the future. Uh, he mentioned universities and the talent and research they nurture, were one of the many parts of British life that stepped up to the coronavirus challenge. And he asked that universities build on the momentum of the work surrounding the pandemic and take the opportunities it presents to rethink how higher education works however he also looked cautiously ahead to the comprehensive spending review and the difficult economic situation it seeks to remedy he made a call on the government uh, not to defund education at such a crucial time for the country but instead redouble its efforts to support both research and innovation and the important social mobility work carried out by universities across the country
0: excellent do you know what it took me right back listening to steve west because he was the uh, well he wasn't vice chancellor he was just a dean of health when i was a sub- officer before the dawn of all time so that was, it was really you know, it took me right back listening to steve west kind of going on this morning uh, you know it was a, it was a good good old-fashioned you know rabble rousing you know um, you know wrap up all the issues in the sector thing and then paul um gavin williamson uh came on next and uh, actually paul before i ask you uh, for a view uh let's hear a bit
4: there have been too many instances where pockets of low quality have undermined the teaching or, or value ...for money that students and taxpayers rightly expect. Lowering the bar for certain groups of students serves no one. It is patronising to expect less from some students under the guise of supporting them. Effective academic writing requires good spelling, punctuation and grammar from every student... It's so disappointing to see some in the field of higher education cling to the myth that the quality of a course or degree makes no difference to a student's outcomes. While it may be comforting for some institutions, what it is actually saying is that it don't believe in education.
2: Well, um, I'm glad we were able to hear a bit of this speech because I must confess, I only read it. I couldn't... um, uh... I was going to say I couldn't bring myself to to, to listen to it, but my diary uh, precluded uh, listening to it to it live. Um, I mean, I, I, I think um, I mean there's lots of speculation about whether um, uh, the secretary of state was about to be reshuffled. Out of his role into some other exciting opportunity. Um, But as it turns out, he was there to deliver his speech. He was there uh, on the screen, but um, uh, there was an irony lost on, I suspect, literally no one of him uh, exhorting universities to do much more in-person teaching whilst delivering um, a a presentation uh, over Zoom. But I, I, I think, uh, as, as you say, Jim, in your piece in, in wonky today on your analysis of this, it was a kind of bit of a greatest hits package for the Secretary of State, rehearsing lots of, lots of issues around, you know, PQA, low quality courses, progression rates, and of course, free speech. And the thing that struck me about your speech was that, I mean, he did refer to, you know, this litany of, um, free speech issues in universities, which again are, you know, generally unevidenced. But he did actually refer to, to national figures, national heroes who'd been prevented from talking in universities. I'm still trying to ter- work out who those national heroes, um, actually are. But it was, uh, familiar terrain, I think, for, for all of us, there remains deep anxiety about what will happen um, in the spending review. I think in the Q and A, he demonstrated that he's got as as good idea about what's going on uh, as any of us outside the Treasury. So, um, you know, it was um, it was I think what we would expect from from a Secretary of, of State. And you know, there were some points of alignment with with Steve West, but but unfortunately, I suspect not as many as ideally a sector would hope for.
0: Sunday, what stood out for you?
1: Oh gosh, um, I did think it was a little bit. Funny that he was uh, telling universities not to debate statues because I thought it was very rich coming from a man who spends his time tweeting about what posters students can have on their walls or not. I think both, I I know that um, Paul said that he didn't see much synchronicity between the two speeches. I I spotted one and it it did infuriate me a little bit and that was that they both touched upon the resilience and worth of the sector during uh, the pandemic. Um, And, you know, that's important and I'm glad that um, that was mentioned. Um, But I do think that they both skimmed over the very real human value of rising to this challenge. Um, I think, you know, in particular, um, it's quite bold bold, uh, to speak of the future of research, when so many potential future researchers, current postgraduate researchers um, at UK universities were completely disregarded by the state funding body, UKRI. And it's also, <laughs> I thought it was also quite audacious to speak of social mobility when the marginalised demographics in, the, in this group were even more impacted. Um, you know, disabled and chronically ill PhD students uh, were writing open letters um or, or uh, you know against this um and and asking for uh for, for more funding or funding extensions um but you know they they were the ones who were told to shield weeks before a national lockdown and that that did have an effect on their research and their lab time um with, with many who have said that they're considering leaving the sector so yeah there has been an incredible rise from researchers and universities but at what cost i know uh, as well as anyone else that there's a deep exhaustion Across the sector, Gavin Williams admits that the last eighteen months have tested administration systems to breaking point. But you know, it's not administration systems; it's administrators, it's people. Um, resilience can't run universities. The determination that Gavin mentioned can't run universities. Our our universities, institutions need forthright and courageous leadership at this time to say, "Yeah, we are doing a fantastic job, but give us more." more support and and
0: that question of funding paul i mean you know one of the things that strikes me about the social care debate this week is the treasury sort of slipped out news that in the csr dfe has got to find five percent efficiency savings now I doubt that will be coming from schools, <laughs> and you know universities and colleges have already got to find the um the the, the kind of employer half of the increase in national insurance that you know it, it, it announced this week. So you know it makes a it makes for a really really difficult uh, CSR really. And he wasn't giving anything away on that, was he?
2: No, and I I, I think there are, you know there is real anxiety in the sector because I, I mean. The the point about resilience is you know is true up to point as as somebody says but the you know the reality is that universities and colleges have done it themselves on the whole right there has been you know very little actual material support. Um, other than the, the 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 same that you know some other businesses have had in terms of of, of furlough, so you know um, we have really struggled as a sector to keep our heads above water and provide the services that we we need to to uh, to our students and our staff. And I think the anxiety about what's coming down the track it, it is real, um, it is absolutely real. But having made all those savings that we did, you know, the idea of having to make further savings, which will will challenge all of those support mechanisms, and having those extra costs on top and you know we we all you know we're expecting additional pension costs uh, as well to come down the track uh, it is going to be really really hard and all, the other point i think to make is that the you know the, the issue about um, you know government has talked big on investment and research and the importance of this in terms of the sector um, in the long term um uh, but has yet to deliver on that promise, and I think it—you know—the the 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 kind of pipeline of investment um, looks to keep you know getting further and further into the future, uh, and that's again a further anxiety for for universities looking to support researchers and to support research which matters. So yeah, I think everyone's pretty anxious at the moment, Jim.
4: One thing I'm very conscious of is that
2: you know, as I said in my speech, I really want to drive up
4: quality uh, right across the university sector. I want to make sure. That um, you know, we drive up not just uh, um, you know right across you know not just about uh, you know dealing with uh, the absolute lowest quality, but also uh, driving up the, the standards right across the board. And I do appreciate that that needs funding. We have uh, one of the world's best university sectors. I would say far better than any other nation in terms of the way we lead in terms of research uh, the opportunities that we give the students and i do recognize that part of that is the fact that we have uh, a funding mechanisms that universities are able to invest in that and it is something that is really so important to me that we protect that position and we protect uh, universities ability to invest in students i think the quid pro quo to that has to be, we need to be, you know, we as a nation, we invest billions of pounds every single year in the higher education sector, um, and, uh, and students uh, do as well. And as part of that deal, we need to be looking at how we're ensuring that the outcomes for those students uh, deliver their hopes and aspirations, but also deals with some of uh, the real issues that this country has in terms of the gaps um, that we have in terms of our economy and how the university sector can really play its role in terms of plugging some of those gaps. But I think if we can do that, drive out the poor quality, continue to drive up standards, make sure that there is a a laser-like focus in terms of outcomes for students, Um, you know, we can constantly demonstrate the real value for money that universities are delivering. And that's certainly everything that I have been doing and will continue to do in terms of uh, every one of my discussions uh, across government, including with the department that you're probably most interested in.
0: Sunday, I mean, I mean, you know, as we've discussed before, if you want to save money on higher education, uh, partly because the Treasury is telling you to, partly because you want to spend it on FE, you can reduce the number of people that go reduce the amount of money you spend per head, and or get graduates to pay back more. Now, Steve West was very keen in his speech to rule out kind of option one and option two and didn't really say anything on graduate repayments, perhaps inevitably. But after this week, I mean, I've seen three or four news stories this week that are really concerned about the graduate um kind of marginal the, the marginal tax rate that that is now being faced by graduates as a result of the national insurance hike it becomes harder doesn't it to suddenly make that little tweak that people talk about which is to take the graduate repayment threshold down to say 20,000 pounds surely that's harder as a result of the national insurance stuff now this week
5: uh,
1: i'll be honest i'm panicking <laughs> about it all um i think it, what, one of the things that you can kind of link into this as well is that there are a lot of students uh, doing what is sort of colloquially known as a panic masters as well. Um, and obviously that is going to add on to repayment threshold as well if it does come down. I, <laughs> I've i been avoiding, I'll be honest, I've been avoiding these stories because they just give me too much anxiety, which might actually, it might be, that might be your answer in itself. Like it's just, it's just too, it's so stressful um, at the moment um to be a recent graduate um i'm sorry i can't give you any more opinion on that it's just even as i'm answering your question i can feel my heart rate
0: (laughs) isn't that interesting because you know when the graduate repayment threshold was designed at 20 you know it was a different housing market different graduate employment market different mental health state of you know graduates and 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 a different different national insurance contributions and now you know all of that has become more you know significantly more difficult and i'm you know i'm looking at it thinking where will they go i mean you you know if you if if you stop people going based on their a level or gcse results that has a significant impact on some students if you you know restrict on the basis of exit outcomes which was one of the bits of gavin's speech today kind of pressuring ofs that has massive impacts on other parts of the sector in terms of social mobility but but you know you also can't can't really soak graduate young graduates much further particularly when you start to eat into the sort of people who've moved back in with their parents in the shires do you know what i mean <laughs> You know, this isn't you know this is, this starts to impact on you know that kind of a, that, those stories this week about you know what happened to the party that was the you know the, the the party of low tax and and I think you know if for years we've been saying well student loans aren't really a loan they're more of a tax suddenly the big story this week was well, well maybe the tax is too high
2: <laughs> yeah I, I, I think it, it is a, a really difficult situation but I, I, I do think the idea of you know, as people often say, putting a cap on ambition by limiting numbers, it would be an extraordinarily unpopular move. Um, yes, by all means, expand other opportunities for people. But, um, you know, there is still, as I'm sure we'll talk about in a moment, massive demand for higher education because it's a good thing. Um, so, but I, I, I agree with you. I think piling more onto people who've already graduated is materially unfair. Um, and, you know, and, and also, I, I do think that, you know, cutting headline fees will, will actually, you know, make little difference to, to, to graduates in terms of repayment, but would make a huge difference to, to universities in a negative way. So I think we need a different lens. I just don't know what that lens is.
0: And, and, it's, and, you know, I mean, the, the other thing to say Sunday I thought that was interesting was he played fast and loose again. Government ministers keep doing this with one minute he was talking about we need to do something for the 50% of people that don't go to uni. Yeah. Then the next minute he's saying, well, we need to change the preferences of a whole bunch of people who do go to uni. It's yeah. What, who are so we? Who this, are you aiming at here? This
1: this really confused me actually because he he actually introduced this point by saying that we're entering a new era of greater choice, so that
0: people. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> okay. this well, will be the passage I, where I'll we're
1: entering you, a new era of less choice. I've got. I I'll tell you what, like I, I would say that actually, the, a lot of the students did not. The, the recent graduates from this cohort did not. They did not get the university experience they signed up to, and they did not get the loan repayment experience that they thought they they agreed to It's so I don't really understand why anyone's got any choice in this or any autonomy um but also you know this idea that people you know we're gonna have greater choice and people don't have to go to university but the UCAS data isn't suggesting that you know if we're if we're entering greater choice for people outside of you know higher education routes well the students don't seem to know that and I mentioned the panic masters earlier i'd say at the moment the evidence is pointing to prospective students perceiving and making choices on this perception that there are less options outside of he you know for example in the in the world of work so that's not lining up to to this apparent new era well um, what did
0: you think of the uh the moment where he was uh, effectively saying that you know that on that proceed measure that moment where you kind of multiply the percentage of people who graduate having enrolled and the percentage of people who get a graduate job within fifteen months that 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 that, that, that univ- providers that are on less than fifty percent you know that would be unacceptable I mean if they applied that at subject level as I've said in the blog today, it's a hell of a lot of subjects at a hell of a lot of universities that would have to go.
2: I I mean, I think it's extraordinarily problematic, but just shows you the danger of, uh, you know, making broad brush policy announcements based on, you know, single points of data, which are wholly imperfect uh, as well for for the reasons that you describe. I I mean, you know, there are all sorts of reasons um, why uh, certain courses behave in different ways. Many of them are discipline specific. Um, Yes, there are certain courses in certain universities, which, you know, because of the, the origins of students means that they are much, much more challenging challenged in terms of their ability to progress. So I just think it's it's just the the wrong indicator to base those kind of decisions on on funding about. You know, the fact that you can actually get anywhere near 50% of people through some courses, given their backgrounds, history, and circumstances, and given the nature of the course, is in many cases a staggering achievement. You know, so I I just think it's the, the wrong indicator for a wrong decision myself.
0: My, my favourite of these, by the way, that I, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, uh, is Norland College, which is the, the, the How to Become a Posh Nanny College, uh, which I rather kind of dismissively have tended to call Mary Poppins College on Twitter. And I'm not taking the piss out of what they do. I think what they do is really interesting. You
2: are taking the piss.
0: I mean, I'm not. I, it's vocational. <laughs> it's actually really interesting, you know, a really interesting degree. But of course, not a single one of those students has, a, has what is defined as a graduate job within 15 months because, mm. you know, being a nanny for posh people in london isn't defined in the in yeah. the codes as a graduate job and, i mean you know, that just that just brings it home doesn't it how problematic some of these kind of measures are
1: it's, it's really interesting that you, you mentioned nanny because it just made me think of um child, like obviously caring for for children um and it it maybe reminded me of him him sort of gloating a little bit over the lifelong entitlement loan and praising it um for its ability to fit around personal circumstances like child care or work or disability which you know that that's fine financially. But I, I was sort of listening to him thinking that, you know, we all know that things like remote study over the pandemic has helped students with those exact commitments. And yet the steer he gave later on was to remove this completely. Return to your classroom. Uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, that's okay for financial support, but finance isn't the only accessibility issue or barrier for students. And, sorry, I'm on a roll now. That wasn't the only contradiction. He actually heavily implied that universities need to be quick off the mark to return to normal, but then later on, shamed universities for inadequate teaching provision for disabled students. <laughs> and I thought, well, what is it, Gavin? A quick pivot back to ni- to normality? K-ism. That's what Are ye? Yeah. The conditions which uphold bad provision for disabled students, or universities take a little while longer to implement accessibility for. All in the long term, it was just a sort of string of contradictions and then he went he went on to call online provision a cost-cutting exercise and I was like I'm getting whiplash here you know like what is going on does he know how many hours it takes to go uh, to upload online learning resources but and also, where's the money for this disabled provision, Gavin? You know? It, oh, yeah, no, it was just an, and, and, a nightmare. And so on,
0: and so on. Anyway, uh, good. Uh, lots more analysis and so on uh, on the site. As ever, uh, links are in the show notes on wonky.com. Good, right. Let's see who's been blogging for us this week.
3: The sustainability agenda is of increasing importance to universities and the whole ag sector. My name's Dr Fiona Cowney. I'm an associate professor at Bournemouth University, and I've just written a piece for Wonky, which asks whether universities intentionally or unintentionally are guilty of greenwashing. Are universities overclaiming on the sustainable practices that they engage in? Are they thinking critically about the kinds of things that they do in order to attract students to their institutions? Are we as academics clearly thinking about how we can engage with the sustainability agenda within the curriculum? I hope that you find the article interesting and I hope it enables you to reflect on your practice for the year ahead. Thank you.
0: Now, meanwhile this week, figures released by
2: UCAS show a funny old clearing season, Paul. They do. And I mean, as... Always, uh, it seems to me, because I've got a very short memory. Uh, it was another record year um, for <laughs> acceptances onto full time undergraduate courses, and it always seems to be a, a record year. But the, the numbers of which gone direction
0: out. was the scramble this
2: oh, year? Paul. Oh, it was, I mean, it's a positive, uh, a, a positive story. But what is different, and and obviously you're you're right. We we always have a scramble of one kind kind or another. It's a, it's the word that always comes into play. Um, that actually, it was it was less because because of the change in grades. Uh, it meant that. With higher A level grades, fewer ended up students ended up um, in clearing because many more reached their uh, reached their offer. So um, it was less activity in clearing, which is obviously you know in a sense good news for um, for for universities as well as for 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 some students. The significant issues in this for me were. One is that the real huge drop in, uh, in EU students, right? Um, really declined heavily, down 56% on last year, um, apparently. So that's a, a big drop. But those from beyond the EU, up 5%. So that's, you know, good news, bit of swings and roundabouts there. But I, I think the... Um, the, the fact of the increase uh, in A-level grades has meant that some universities have ended up recruiting more students. Some of those they plan to recruit. Others of those they probably didn't. They just got their algorithms wrong. Um, but I, I do think that the overall picture is is, is encouraging. And as we were saying uh, before, I mean, you know, it demonstrates that actually you know, higher education is a great choice for lots of people. It's bound to be a more popular choice at times of economic uncertainty, which we're living in now, um, but it remains a, a great choice. Yes, there is a, a you know, a, a an extended uh, loan period after graduation, but actually it remains and looks on paper and feels like, uh, you know, a good investment uh, for lots of people. Yes, there are plenty of other choices, but I think the reality is that the other choices are in practice Relatively, relatively limited. And the higher education options look much more attractive. The Brexit impact on EU students is unsurprising. And of course, the, the international numbers do remain precarious until pretty late in the day. You don't know they're coming until they're actually here. And of course, the, the issues around, you know, red list countries around quarantine make it much, much harder, not to mention the vagaries of, of visa issuing, make it much more uncertain about who will actually turn up. So there remains anxiety in, in admissions team up and down the country about international numbers. But the overall picture in terms of home numbers actually looks really positive, I think. Sunday, the the, the
0: stat that uh, jumped out at me was this idea that um, this time last year, there were 116, well, 117,000 free to be placed in clearing people. And that's now 145,000. Why aren't, um, you know, why aren't, you know, what's going on there? Is it that more people applied kind of speculatively and they've now changed their mind? Is it, is it there's loads of jobs in bars that are paying 40 grand? I mean, what's mm-hmm. going on?
1: I think one of the things that uh, hasn't been discussed that much, or haven't I haven't seen discussed that much, is that a lot of you know my generation, Generation Z. I think there's there's an underestimation of how much we have to base our decisions on immediacy. So what is our immediate situation right now? Um, You know, we talk a lot about long term planning, but you know, we we don't have pensions, we don't have houses, we get married later, and uh, I speak as someone who went to university because I didn't have parents to support me and the state were gonna give me ten grand to car for myself. So like that you know, that that, that, these these, decisions Yeah, right. But you know, that there are we are an incredibly precarious uh generation and um yeah it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if if many many applicants are making decisions based on the immediacy of their current situation which is incredibly ca- precarious as well
0: yeah and it, and it's interesting isn't it paul because i mean actually this time last year you know taking a taking a year out um either because you know you wanted to travel or you needed the money didn't <laughs> wasn't really a thing but um it you know may well be a thing this year but i mean the other thing i was going to ask paul is these global figures are what they are but under the surface there's a distribution of these numbers, isn't there, around the sector and even within universities. You know, there's a, there's quite a... I think, you know, some of the stories I've heard are, are, are quite sharp increases and decreases that, you know, aren't highlighted here in the global numbers.
2: That's right. I mean, and individual institutions can be in a position where they're, you know, they're, they are, you know, significantly under in certain subjects and massively over in others. And that, that can cause huge logistical problems, you know, from everything from timetable to actual staff to do the teaching, etc um and you know if you've got a big bulge you get end up with difficulties with accommodation as well, and you know, so so there can be real difficulties within an institution. What I I haven't quite got a sense of. It's often said that if if you know Russell Group universities all over recruit, then that creates problems for you know for other universities outside the Russell Group who are you know who are find themselves you know chasing uh, students, and then you know some universities miss out. It, it's much more complicated than that. But there is a sense I think in which Russell Group universities have recruited more than uh, they did the previous year. Year. That's possibly because of excess demand in certain subject areas, such as medicine and health sciences, where they, there are a lot of places in Russell Group universities. But I, I don't get a sense of where the, the challenges between in certain universities actually are at the moment. That will come clear in the next few weeks i guess but yeah these things do cause huge perturbations within institutions and between subjects and then leads to longer term issues around resource allocation within universities and and what that actually means because you often find yourself having to invest more in you know psychology and law which have you know over recruited but actually you don't want to disinvest you know from from other subjects because you know that you'll be looking to bounce back next year and also you've got to support the students who are currently there so you end up you know recruiting more and then that adds to your cost base and you've got to find other ways to make savings so lots of challenges caused by what on the surface of it looks like a a general increase
0: now every week on the show we delve deep into the sector's past to discover stories of how things were and how things came to be with nottingham trent's academic registrar mike Ratcliffe, here's
5: the hidden history of (laughs) hiv One of the things I think makes history of higher education interesting is the the amount of continuity and the amount of change that we see. So one of the things I really enjoy is looking at old regulations of how we looked after students. Um, sometimes that's quite useful because you get really good ideas of how you regulate students now in the, in the present. But I think sometimes it just shows us that we're still dealing with some of the same challenges. So my favourite set of these regulations is the statutes of the Collegium Sapienti at Freiburg University, which were written in 1497. And they are beautiful. They are illustrated, which I think is a great idea. We should run that out across um, universities anyway. But they cover the whole of student life. They were written by a bishop who'd been working with the university for a long time. He understood what students got up to uh, and he set out a complete set of rules. So it has everything you could possibly want to run a proper university. So it's got rules about how you uh, welcome a student to the university, how you make a list of the furnishings in their room, so it gets an inventory, and so they're clear that they've got to account for everything that's in the rooms. Um, There's a system for allocating the rooms. It's done by lottery, so no one can have the good rooms um, on favoritism, Uh, and there are quite clear rules about what time you have to go to bed, and that there's study time, everyone should be quiet. Uh, You have to clean your room once a week. There's a great set of rules for how you have to make your bed immediately after you've risen in the morning, uh, and then you get into the excitement, which is the penalty system. So the regulation says failure to comply as a result of laziness when noticed during the weekly inspection and reported to the president shall be punished by the removal of wine. If this should happen frequently, the scholar in question shall be deprived of his bed. Great thing about all of these regulations is basically the tariff system is how much wine you have removed for the different infringements you go through. Now, we have to remember that obviously um, wine was a different kind of commodity. It was a drinkable uh, uh, drink. It wasn't quite the same as uh, having a your vodka-based um, uh, confection taken away from you by the university but that's how it works you go through uh, and you, you get all these punishments so there's a whole bunch of things that these people are, are are not allowed to do they're they're kind of clerks in lay orders there, so they're kind of semi-religious but it's very clear there's lots of things they shouldn't be getting on to so uh, there's to be no loose frivolous frivolous uh, or obscene song no blasphemy and no kinds of boasting um, dice, cards and sticks for casting lots on all games of chance are forbidden disregard of this rule should be punished with the loss of wine for a week chess however is allowed and it goes on so there are these lovely things so uh, again one of the things we do is we, we often contrast ourselves with uh, people in the u.s so there's a lot of very clear rules about no arms allowed so you have to hand your sword into the president when you arrive at the college uh, if you need it back you can go and get it when you you're, you know if you're going outside town uh, but you're not allowed to keep it in in the hall and a very clear rules about no fighting in the in the college and, and what you do with it and as you go through the sets of regulations, each has this wonderful little illustration showing you exactly what's going on. So every everything is, is beautifully set out and laid down. But it's a pocket set of rules, and most of it, uh, probably apart from the swords, is entirely applicable to the modern university. Now, back in the spring, the
0: UPP Foundation asked Mary Curnock-Cook to chair something called the Student Futures Commission. And this week we saw an interim report. Sunday, what stood out for you?
1: Uh, Gosh, uh, quite a few things uh, stood out for me. I I think one one thing that I was really um, in two minds about, because I was really glad that uh, they mentioned it, um, but I was also disappointed um, with uh, the fact that there were no follow-up policy recommendations or, or advice. And and that was that they touched upon the fact that students with little to no drug use experience may well be encountering uh, recreational substances in their first couple of weeks of term. And because they haven't got experience taking drugs, um, they may overindulge. Um, yeah, no, as, as I said, it was, it was disappoint. I felt, I thought, I, I was glad to see this, but I thought it was disappointing that there were no pol- uh, policy recommendations or advice on what universities can do in terms of um, harm minimization. As, you know, as we all know, um, policies around drug use vary so far across the sector. And uh, my view is always that, you know, we can't stop students taking drugs, but we can uh, implement harm minimization policies that promote openness around drug use and messaging to students you know that if they do come to the university seeking support for problematic drug use they're going to be supported and not penalized and you know the danger of not implementing such policies is that there would be uh, this year uh, more tragic fatalities such as the very sad string of incidents in uh, Northumbria last autumn um, because when students are apprehensive around disciplinaries or expulsion there can be a delay or a complete absence in, in asking or calling for help and obviously this can be fatal um, and I really felt that the report should have been more directive here especially when students lives are at risk
0: well do you know what sunday it's very interesting that you raise that because uh, there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff that i've been reading about what happens at the end of pandemics (laughs) right Uh, and everything i've read suggests that people particularly the young grasp at freedom rather than safety um, and, you know, indulge in significant levels of hedonistic activity. And Paul, one of the things that, you know, I think is interesting about this is 20, 30 years ago, every student union welfare officer was doing like, you know, uh, drug awareness stuff and alcohol awareness stuff and sexual health stuff. And actually it's kind of gone out of fashion a lot of that. But if we're about to get this, bi- and it's a big if, if we're about to get a big spate of hedonistic risk taking behavior amongst students, universities, student unions, student services departments, people need to kind of, kind of step up around that kind of harm minimizing. Risk, risk, risk type stuff, don't they?
2: I think I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I I, I would dispute a bit of the, um, uh, the the going out of fashion thing. I mean, I I, I do take the point about um, about non legal drugs, as it were. I I do think that actually there is much less focus on those issues um, at the moment. Regarding alcohol, I would argue there is a much greater focus in my experience on on alcohol related issues than I think there has ever been and and the kind of post pandemic approach that you know that I think lots of universities are taking is how do we how do we at the same time as providing a, a kind of meaningful and helpful return to you know a more typical study model for students starting and returning to university this autumn at the same time, how do we we provide the environment which enables them to at least um, you know, explore elements of that hedonistic lifestyle that they feel that they will have missed for the past 18 months, whilst at the same time, uh, helping them to stay safe in that environment and providing them with the support if they do fall off the rail so i think there's a really difficult balancing act uh, and that's not to mention that the kind of pressure from local communities who you know remain concerned about any kind of uh you know student behavior which is you know kind of noisy slash alcohol fueled slash in the early hours of the morning and the impact that has on uh and other communities lives so i think there's a whole bunch of issues in there but i, I do think the universities are trying to focus on it Although, as Sunday says, mm. I suspect they're not covering all of those bases to the same effect.
1: I think, yeah, I, do, I do have a lot of respect for Mary and I have a lot of respect for this report, actually. And there's stuff that I, I really, uh, I thought was yeah, great. I mean, the belonging stuff
0: is, uh, is uh, I mean, today at University's UK conference, Mary Cairnock-Cook apparently was mm. saying, you know, belonging is the new, I can't remember what it was, the you know the, the, the new engagement or something. Well, I just... <laughs>
1: I just did feel that there was almost an exclusive focus on preparedness academically, but not on social or emotional maturity. And I do think that that is an oversight given Hepi's report into student attitudes towards sex in April this year, which, you know, without a doubt, as you wrote on the site, Jim, showed that certain demographics of student are absolutely not prepared for the very adult experiences that they're going to encounter at university um, at yeah no I, I I felt and obviously you know students not being prepared academically is that is important as well and they do make um a really good point oh you know they they cite um data from the student room saying that 26% of applicants didn't feel ready although I did wonder what the baseline for that was I was thinking like is there a baseline though from non pandemic years of students who don't feel ready for university um and obviously they they sort of make the point that um it's not just content but also the opportunity uh, to mature study skills and they they raised an interesting point around the intense period of revisions before exams being quite helpful and I had never thought about that before but I did also think well what evidence is there for that claim because all the conversations I've been seeing are around the you know the efficacy of exams um, and how maybe we maybe we should move away from the exam module so I kind of think well is it beneficial or not is is exams and revisions something vital in in level three learning journey that we need to not only retain but lament that the students haven't had it this year or is it something that doesn't contribute to to the you know the sort of academic maturity of our students so there was a lot of sort of as I was reading it there was a lot of sort of every everything every point that I thought that's a point well made I then thought Oh, but what about this question? Um, which is how I tend to read things. And, anyway. and the good news
0: is, it's only an interim report, and yeah. uh, doubtless uh, lots yeah. of opportunities. To, I, uh,
1: yeah. I did, I did like that they, they they made it very clear that universities need to be clear and precise about exactly what blended and hybrid mean. And they need to justify the pedagogical uh, benefits because we have spent the last 18 months being told how fantastic online learning is, that all students need to pay the exact same as a normal year to access it. And now suddenly everyone's banging on about how great in-person is and that we need to get it. We need to get back straight away. And I'm like, well, you can't have it both ways. So when I saw them, when I saw that, you know, it was quite a firm, you have to be clear and your justifications have to come forward. I thought I had a lot of respect for that point. I thought, yeah, I'm glad that someone's saying that because it's, it's, it's something that's frustrated me a lot.
0: Good. And there's a blog from uh, Commission Chair Mary Curnock-Cook on the site as well as linked to the interim report on the UPP Foundation site. Now, news from Scotland this week and DK is across it.
6: Imagine a world where a government announces stuff that it had expected to announce and the only major concern is that the speed of delivery could be a bit faster. That world is Scotland. And for those who watch HE Policy in Scotland, last Tuesday brought the first fruits of a number of prominent seeds. What feels like forever ago, Peter Scott, the Commissioner for Fair Access, made a suite of recommendations on student maintenance. Scotland has long prided itself on free higher education, but it's been a common consensus that the student support offer has lagged behind. A pledge to see the Total Student Support Package reach the equivalent of a living wage over the next three years goes some way towards addressing these concerns, and there's additional measures to support care experienced and estranged students. At Wonky, we've long been hoping for a proper government assessment of the student housing market, and it looks like in Scotland we will be getting one, with recommendations in the next 12 months on regulation, affordability and the role of local authorities. The big piece that remains on the table is the recommendation of the SFC's three-phase review. There will be a full government response shortly, but we already know the National University and Colleges Estate Strategy and a review of postgraduate funding are on their way in the not-too-distant future. Elsewhere, there are a raft of research announcements confirmed and the SFC recommendation on digital learning and mental health are addressed in part. While most UK-wide interest in the programme for government has been around the ongoing question of independence for Scotland, one perhaps overlooked aspect has been a review of the fiscal framework between Holyrood and Westminster, with Scotland looking to gain new borrowing and tax-setting powers.
0: And finally, two big reports this week about international students,
2: Paul. Two reports, yeah, one of them from um, Universities UK and UUKI, which is looking at, at the 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 uh, country's success or otherwise in terms of international uh, student recruitment, and it it, it really flags uh, a number of challenges that we have about our positioning in the world and our ability to attract international students, who are you know fundamental to you know the campus experience, but also fundamental to uh, our financial position um, in the sector. And I, I think what it does really indicate is that we need to continue to work hard and indeed work harder in terms of our promotion of the quality of UK higher education, the opportunities we offer, the potential to study uh, and then earn afterwards uh, through the graduate employment route. Uh, but also, you know, issues around visas and making that easy. Uh, and also something that i not really thought about before, which is about the need for additional support and uh, encouragement for the English language uh, education sector. So we've always been second to the US, but we are very, very close to being overtaken uh, by others, particularly Australia. It's often a, a real competition with them. And as another report shows, actually, the massive financial benefit 28.8 billion pounds uh, highlighted in the happy report was a study undertaken by london economics is a huge income stream for this country right the equivalent of 390 pounds per person for the whole country brought in by international students and that is a phenomenal sum of money and uh, that report goes on to show that um actually those st- those uh, constituencies with the highest density of students, uh, particularly in Sheffield and indeed my own uh, university constituency, Nottingham South, actually the sums involved are, are breathtaking. And uh, in Nottingham South, for example, the uh, the, the sum is uh, two hundred ninety million. Uh, sorry, that's the Sheffield figure. Two hundred ninety million. Nottingham South, two hundred sixty-one million. That's two thousand three hundred ninety. Pounds per resident. It's an extraordinary figure. So it's really insightful couple of reports, I think, but just show how important uh, international students are, not just financially, uh, but also in terms of the cultural and uh, social benefits they bring to communities and the you know the diversity benefits for uh, cities and communities in which they live. So I think both really really interesting reports.
0: Sunday, obviously, you know one of the things about this is about getting uh, the welcome right. You know, welcoming mm. international students. And there's nothing that you know. There's nothing like being invited to spend two thousand two hundred and eighty-five pounds uh, to spend uh, a week in a grim premier uh, that <laughs> the, the, <laughs> If you're from a red list country that you're struggling to book through the system, oh, I mean, you know, we haven't me. quite we haven't quite got this right, have we?
1: Okay, yeah, right. Uh, it's interesting that you bring up that self isolation stuff, actually, because I, I did read in the in the U-U-K-I, the UKI uh, recommendations. Um that obviously Southeast asia is, is is an area that they're they're looking to um focus on um and 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 up the intake of 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 applicants and students from and and the work that I did last year obviously we we were dealing with lots of students from uh places like Korea, places like Vietnam who were sort of being lumped together um with Chinese students and all facing horrific um racism in in the city centre. Um, that our university had to actually come out and condemn. Um, the recommendation that I took issue with, uh, actually was, uh, to improve the promotion of the UK as welcoming, diverse and accessible. And I think, well, that's fine to promote the UK as that, but it actually does have <laughs> to do be have to that as more well. Yeah. Right. Now <laughs> more I, accessible. I've, yeah. right. I've worked in university for a while and we're always told that international recruitment comes mostly from from word of mouth, right? Students going home and telling their friends and family that the UK is a great place to study. But prospective students aren't stupid and we can promote, led by the government... As in, the, it said in the report, the idea of the UK as welcoming, all we want, but it does have to live up to that when the students get here. <laughs> yeah. And given the news today that this very same government is, you know, ordering lifeboats of refugees to be sent back across the Channel, I'm not sure we can live up to that. And I do, I genuinely do think that this report has missed out the impacts on uh, of xenophobia, racism, and general hostility in in students' um, decisions. You know, if you look, if you actually looked into um, into the data points, the ISS 2020 showed that the key factors that influence students' decisions are related um, to immigration and being made to feel welcome. 38% were worried about hostility. That's not a small number. 49% were less interested in the UK since Brexit. So where are the recommendations beyond Surface level, you know, those students' concerns about racism don't exist in a vacuum, but I did a little control find on the document. The term racism came up once in the 86 page report, and it was in a quote from a recruitment agent in South Asia. The term discrimination in the 86 page report came up once, and that was from a Saudi student. So, you know, the, sh- the student voice is there, but the recommendations aren't responding to them and this i'll make one more point on this this xenophobia and hostility it does it does have an impact on other recommendations in the report so nigerian saudi and pakistani students all saw the uk as a higher quality of education than their home country right so that higher quality is why they'd come here rather than study at home um Now, that's fundamentally linked to our immigration policies, because if we want to offer the highest quality of teaching, we need the highest quality of teachers. So we need to be attracting the best from the global talent pool. We can't do that if they don't want to live here or if we make it incredibly difficult for them to live here.
2: I, I just to say, I mean, I completely endorse all of that. I mean, I, 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 think it's, it's always, you know, a bit harsh to, to, to say with reports. Well, they, 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 didn't include this and they didn't include that. But I, I absolutely agree with you, Sunday. That, you know, the environment that uh, the country offers to welcome students is, is not just about promotion, right? You've got, you've got to, you've got to deliver um, the reality of it. And every time you see a picture of a, you know, um, a, a gunboat turning around a, you know, a, a life raft, actually that's turning off another hundred international students right you know it it shows britain as being unwelcoming to international um people who need our help right be that either because they're refugees and have got nothing or because they want a top quality education and are prepared to pay for it, right? But it's about your, your national approach to these things. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't say, yes, we want to offer um, you know a great education to people who are prepared to pay and then turn everyone else back at the border because they haven't got the right visa. It has to work all in harmony and you have to have the attitudes and the welcoming approach, which is about challenging racism and ensuring that people are provided with the support they need where they do experience Uh, negative attitudes and communities to make it a welcoming country and you know that's something that we've got to play our part in as well
0: So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Just search for The Wonky Show via Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and your organisation ahead of everything going on in UKHE, do head to the website to find out more about our various subscriptions. So thanks very much to Paul, Sunday, Mike, everyone at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen. And until next week, stay wonky.